Welcome to Chowder and Grits. Today is Monday, July 1st, and it is July 4th week. Happy 4th of July, everybody. We've got a little fun power ranking to kick off this show that will leave you itching to get ready for for your cookouts with your family and friends. We've got UVA and Pitt spring football recaps that we're talking about today. And then we also kind of relive the Virginia Tech-UVA rivalry. Talk about that a bit. But first, Tim, what's going on? I'm sitting at a table getting ready to talk to you on our podcast, and I'm pretty excited about it. I'm hanging out. I have uh, my, my back is a little bit injured. I almost stepped on a copperhead this past weekend. Ooh. So okay. in the process of laying a juke down on that pit viper, let me tell you, buddy, I, uh, I tweaked my back pretty bad. I got a herniated disc, and it doesn't like when I uh, lay down the kind of moves I had to put down on that snake. So, um, you know, we were taking some pictures, some family pictures, and you want to make them look good, so you always go to a nature-type situation. And uh, there's a park down the street from my house, and uh, we were walking down the greenway on the way back from doing the pictures, and I was about to put my foot down right on top of the, the copperhead in this case who was kind of leaned back ready to strike and before my left foot went down I somehow spun off of my right leg um and I think I crossed him up so hard that he didn't even really try to recuperate he literally just slithered off the greenway he was like I had enough I'm punching the clock got off a camera because he didn't want to be trolled online that's what happened yeah if he wasn't just one long I don't even know what's in there probably a spine but that's about it no appendages if he had ankles they would have been completely destroyed well, uh, well, it sounds like I'm not sure who got the worst end of that. It was either you or the, <laughs> or the snake. Um, yeah. But oh, his ego is, is done. Yeah. It's not bruised. It's destroyed. Yeah. So. No, I mean over Snake TV, he is being shamed by everybody. <laughs> he is. Um, he is. You know, I'm not sure if I was being shamed, but it sure did feel this way, Tim. So, I go to check into a hotel last Friday. Got a little work trip going on, and I'm in you know Columbus, Ohio. Oh, and sure. I start looking around, and you know, there's a bunch of, uh, you know, people. They 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 had this look about them, but I just kind of went about it, and they they were all playing this like card game, and it was just across the entire, you know, foyer of the hotel. It was just everywhere I looked, there was people playing this game. And they all had kind of the <laughs> same look, and just like, okay, this is odd. You know, it's nine thirty at night. It's Thursday. You know, I'm there for a work function on Friday, so go up to the hotel desk and i'm like yeah right my name is justin cochola i'm here to check in and uh you know she takes my credit card id she's like oh are you here for the pokemon convention <laughs> i never knew you. such unhurtful words could cut so deep <laughs> i was just i was just shocked that i apparently had the look of a pokemon player i don't even know what what to call them like so is this gonna lead to an image overhaul from you what happens where do you go from here well i mean to be honest tim like you know i was wearing jeans i had a virginia tech hat on and a t-shirt like (laughs) i don't that's kind of just what i wear it was just a plain old ralph lauren polo t-shirt um the next day, I walk around, and it's just Pokemon, you know, USA. There's a 50-foot Pikachu in the convention hall. 
next to the hall that I was going into, and I just couldn't get away from it the entire weekend. So, I'm a little jealous. I was not. A jealous. I was not. I would not be <laughs> jealous of me. Um, but yeah, I just I never took myself as looking like a guy who would be into Pokemon. But you know, I guess I'm wrong. I guess I'm. I guess I look. I look that way. I was profiled, yeah. and I didn't appreciate it. Hey, but I mean, at least you got some good use out of the uh, commemorative Pokeball bars of soap that I'm sure they stocked for you. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. They had all kinds of other characters that, you know, I didn't recognize. But, uh, yeah, let's kind of jump into it, Tim. So last week, well, we're coming to you a little bit early this week because we wanted to get you a uh, July 4th week episode. You know, we've got some travel conflicts, but... We wanted to talk about the NBA draft and how the ACC dominated it. And basically, you know, really all there is to talk about, Tim and I are now lifelong New Orleans Pelicans fans. Oh, yeah, since day one. Not because of Zion Williamson necessarily, but because he's being paired with Nikhil Alexander-Walker. The GOAT. The GOAT. The second player in Virginia Tech history to be drafted in the first round, selected 17th overall by Brooklyn, now a New Orleans Pelican. They had a great draft, really. I mean, they were loaded with picks. Uh, what they got in the overhaul from the, Lebr- the uh, Anthony Davis trade, you know, was something. But uh, the ACC as a whole did really well, Tim. They had five of the top ten picks. Um, you know, that's only been done maybe a couple of times in the modern draft era. That's um, crazy. You know, we, we had uh, Zion going one to New Orleans. We had R.J. Barrett going number three to New York. You know, we saw Kobe White, Cam Reddish. Um, who else am I missing? There's there's a bunch of guys. So there's a lot. Yeah. Uh, Cam Johnson was. Cam Johnson. Was, uh, yeah. He he went what a little bit higher than than uh, anticipated to the Timberwolves at number eleven, I believe. So yeah, it was a good night for the ACC. Um, that kind of ended the hype for the Hokies um, from a basketball standpoint. Uh, earlier this week, if you haven't seen, Kerry Blackshear Jr. is leaving the program and going to the University of Florida. He is a Orlando native. Uh, that is the only connection I could really understand as to why he would have gone to UF and not gone back to Virginia Tech. Uh, but he did have some nice options on the table. You know, it was rumored for a long time he was going to Kentucky. Then it sounded like Tennessee was going to be a uh, a contender. But at the end of the day, uh, Kerry Blackshear would have probably gone down as one of the greatest big men in Virginia Tech history. And instead, no about that. He, uh, he bailed. And so he's going to be kind of seen as the guy who who left, in my opinion. Right. Right. I mean, he will. And and Kerry was so good. And he was really, really turning it up there towards the end of the season without Justin Robinson when the Hokies needed him the most. His game was really, really, really developing. So I think the Gators got an absolute great, great pickup there. No question about that. I just not sure I understand, um, you know, wanting to leave a place where you could really leave a mark as one of the best basketball players to ever play at a university to, to go be a mercenary for a year in the SEC. Um, but you know, a a lot goes on behind the scenes that maybe we don't understand. He is an Orlando native. Uh, maybe there's a reason he wants to be closer to family. Um, either way, uh, you know, I, I appreciate what he did for us uh, when he was here, but, uh, definitely, definitely sad to see him go. Yeah. Sad to see him go, but at the same time, you gotta still be happy with the job that, uh, that Mike Young has done at Virginia Tech, you know, Buzz Williams, uh, 
built a nice little team. And I'll emphasize team. He did not really build a program at Virginia Tech. No. And when he left, the cupboard was bare. And Mike Young has done a good job to come in and salvage what he could, but at the same time still filling out the roster with some pretty pretty nice pieces, a bunch of guys that have reclassified from the 2020 class to 2019. So, you know, I'm not sure what to think of the Hokies yet next year. You know, I think probably we're looking at an NIT bid. Yeah, uh, but it's going to be a young team. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that they're bringing in are, are considered to be strong defensively, and uh, you know, I'm assuming they they fit Mike Young's young system pretty well. So we'll see what happens. Uh, there is still a lot of room for optimism. I'm excited about the season, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, disappointed Blackshear decided to to head out of town. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as of today, we are recording this on Thursday night. There is still no news on Tavian Feaster. So if that news broke over the weekend, uh, yeah, we're jacked that he chose Virginia Tech, which we know he will. Yeah, thanks, Tavian. Um, but Tim, let's uh, let's first talk about July Fourth. I love so July Fourth. Uh, you know, America's birthday. Absolutely. Uh, it's basically the the grill out day of the year. You know, it's about cookouts, it's about hanging out with friends, family, you know, having a good time, eating some good food, drinking some good drinks. So, let's do a little power ranking, Tim. Absolutely. Your top five best July 4th cookout sides. Why don't you go first? State uh, draft, top I w- first. I would love to go first, because the number one pick in the July 4th sides draft has got to be coleslaw. And I'll tell you why. One, it's delicious by itself. Coleslaw is, you know, and you always, it's so divisive. You either get the people that love coleslaw or the people that hate coleslaw. People that hate coleslaw always think they're blowing your minds when they say, hey, you know that's cabbage and mayonnaise, right? Well, let me tell you, cabbage and mayonnaise is delicious when it's mixed together and let, you know, let chill in the fridge for 24 hours. The key to coleslaw being the number one pick is it's a side, but it's also the ultimate condiment on July 4th because it's great on hamburgers. It's elite on hot dogs. A chili and coleslaw and mustard hot dog is elite. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's so many uses for it. So number one off the board first is going to be coleslaw for me. Yeah, I'm going to go hard pass on that one. Mm. Uh, not a coleslaw guy. Hate to hear now, it. Now, that being said, like if I'm doing like an Asian slaw, you know, sans mayonnaise, I can get behind that. I just, I'm not a mayonnaise guy. So coleslaw for me, not, uh, not really on my list. Mm, that hurts. Now, number one for me, Tim. I just I, I just love me some of this. A nice mustard potato salad. Okay, that's a definite win from me. I, I'm with you on this. Okay, so what are you saying? You're on board or no? Definitely on board. I think okay. the the now it's got to be it's got to be thicker on the potato side. I don't like it to be like real saucy. Yeah. You know, you got to get that potato consistency in there right. with that little bit of mustard flavor just really kind of accenting it real well and just, you know, rocking your world, basically. Yeah. So where I'm from in North Carolina and all of my family functions until I got to maybe high school, I didn't know that there was such a thing as, as a potato salad that wasn't yellow. Yeah. So, um, and I know you, same thing. Uh, the same part of southeastern Virginia that you're from is going to be the same way. Um but yeah, learning and I learned. I learned a couple things. I learned that German potato salad is way down in the rankings of potato salads, and some people have a horrid white uh, potato salad that just doesn't taste like anything. Yeah, the white potato salad is uh, 
you know, sometimes you can hit on it, but other times it's just this weird pasty consistency and it right. just doesn't taste very good. So, yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. just bad tapioca pudding mixed with potatoes. Disgusting. So what's what's next for you? So what's next for me is going to be a classic and I'm pretty sure most people have this, but it is going to be, uh, you know, I don't really know what the name is. My family's been making it forever, but it's a mix of three beans, lima, baked beans, and maybe another type of bean in there thrown in a pot with uh, a bunch of seasonings, maybe some ketchup, maybe some mustard and some bacon and cooked in the oven. Basically the side here, we're going to throw a catch all and we're going to say baked beans. Um, in general, baked beans has got to be, um, your, one of your top picks for July 4th. I mean, that's an all time classic. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That was a strong contender for number one for me. Uh, you know, number two has got to be a, a nice, you know, hearty mac and cheese. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, just maybe three, four, five, six different kinds of cheeses. If you really want to get crazy, you know, a nice big thick noodle. Oh yeah. You gotta and have a thick noodle. You gotta, and then you gotta bake it. Okay. You want a thick noodle? You, sometimes you, you can get, get some noodles crispy. with some nooks and crannies in there too. Get a little tricky. Yeah. You know, the older you get, the fancier you get with your noodle game. You know, oh, gro- for sure. Growing I don't, up, I don't want the crafts box. No, no, no. Kind of stuff. Growing up, get you think it's, it's elbow noodles. It's not about the elbow noodles. If you've got a yeah. truly mature macaroni and cheese game, you're at least throwing three different tri- times of cheeses in there, and you're also using some some wicked cool noodles. Three minimum, if you want a party, I'd say four to five. And let me tell you, let me tell you, just a little pro tip here: Gruyere, Gruyere has got to be in there if you're going to make a good mac and cheese. Okay, I like it. That's a good call. Yeah. Hey, I'm here to please, man. I do what I can. All right, what's next for you? Oh, geez. So I'm going to pick something here that I don't think many people have had, um, but I really, really like it. Have you ever had cowboy caviar? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. Okay. I don't know how many people out there have had it, but it is uh, a mixture of black-eyed peas and a seasonings and a whole bunch of stuff that is just fantastic. If you've never had cowboy caviar... Look up a recipe as soon as you can. Mix it together, throw it in the fridge, and eat it the next day. It's it's elite, and I have it at most July 4th. Okay, this is a strong number three, and I was not introduced to this until I went over to, uh, to my wife's parents' place. My mother-in-law makes a mean strawberry pretzel salad. Oh, my gosh. I've had that Next one. Next level. Oh, like I can't even put into words what this particular dish means to me. It's that good. <laughs> it's so good. It's, it's so just, good. It's everything that you you know is like not great for you, but you just want to eat the entire tray. Oh my gosh. You know? Oh, dude, that was a great call. That, and that's yeah. one of those things that is very southern. Um I don't think I, I think sure. I had it once in my life and it was when I lived in Georgia. But mm-hmm. I still remember how delicious Tennessee. that was. Tennessee. Yeah. This is, where, this is where the magic happened. Perfect. Well, hey, that sounds like a place where they would eat strawberry pretzel salad. Exactly. Number four for you. Number four. See, I got I to gotta do some, some quick thinking here on number four. I'm going to go with a classic. I don't know how July 4th-y it is for a lot of people, um, but near and dear to my heart are deviled eggs. Um, <sighs> Absolutely. And... I mean, these are, these are the most crucial aspect of really any holiday for my family. Um, and kind of who gets to make the deviled eggs is always, you know, it's a question who makes them better. 
Um, but any deviled egg's a good deviled egg as far as I'm concerned. And Well, Tim, um, if I was invited to this party, we could go ahead and end that conversation. It'd be me. I, J- Justin, you got to have my deviled eggs, man. Before before we go talking crazy, <laughs> let's, let's at least compare deviled eggs here. Okay. What do, what do you put in your deviled eggs? Do you sneak a little dill in there, or do you keep it pretty vanilla with just the mayo oh, no, and yeah, the mustard? Yeah, definitely in? go dill, but I, uh, yeah, I go with the mustard. I go with the mustard. Yeah. Mustard and the dill, and maybe See? throw in a little bacon. Maybe a little pickle juice. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a I little like tip again. Just another tip. Uh, for me, number four, another strong one, uh, Watergate salad. Oh, man. You are busting out the big guns right now, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very simplistic dish to make. You know, you get some crushed pineapple. Oh, you get some word. Cool Whip. You get some pistachio pudding mix. And you get some pecans. And you mix all that guy together. And you've got a delicious Watergate salad. That's all green and marshmallowy and Cool Whippy, ready to be eaten. I cannot believe that I forgot... About Watergate salad. I never would have thought of it to even say it, but it's incredible. And that may be one of those, too, that people aren't necessarily familiar with, even though it's something I grew up with. Um, holy yeah, cow. I, I, feel like, I feel like, hey, we're in ACC country. People probably know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. And so my fifth and final side in the power rankings here isn't really a dish. It's really an item. But I think it's so crucial to the 4th of July experience, and that's going to be a watermelon that you let sit in the fridge before you cut it. Okay. I'm just going to say the Is contrast. Is it being soaked of, in something? No, it's just sitting in there getting cold. And, and that's another one of those things where the watermelon, right? We all know it's, it's a very wet fruit. But on those hot days, July 4th, typically very hot in the South, you don't want like a watermelon that's been sitting on a table, right? You want to cut into something that's going to be cold and refreshing. So a key to the watermelon game, if you're not a fan of watermelon, you don't need a lot of watermelon, next time you pick one up, put it in the fridge for at least a day, then cut it, and and it will be a much better experience for everyone. Okay, well, I'm glad this one's here. And uh, I didn't necessarily grow up with this one, but as I became older, this became a staple of my diet and also july 4th uh endeavoring roasted brussels sprouts oh my god those are so good <laughs> but you gotta you gotta char them real good oh yeah maybe even throw a little bit of soy sauce on in there or or maybe some balsamic reduction okay okay oh, yeah. i and started then, buying that for for yeah. that very purpose yeah exactly throw a little bacon oh i'm telling you i mean just you you've got i don't even need a burger just give me the sides. Oh my god. That's the great thing about July 4th. That's what I that's why I love July 4th. I could literally not eat the main course and might even be even happier depending yeah. on whoever cooked it, which is typically me, so I'm sure it would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. But say it wasn't me and it wasn't done well, I'll just stick to the sides. Yeah, I mean you could easily fill up on sides and be happy. I mean usually the hamburgers are overcooked anyway. Um, you know, hot dogs though. Big ups to hot dogs, the most underrated food in America. Those are always good, but the sides are, are beautiful. And I just wanted to say, you closed out strong. The best part of the Brussels sprout when it is charred in the oven is the little outer layers that get really dry and flake off. Oh, absolutely. You know? Oh, my gosh. They should yeah. they should freeze-dry freeze them, them, bag them. pick them up, and they just, like, disintegrate. Yeah, they right crumble. They crumble. It's yeah. like a salty 
I don't know, a salty chip with no carbs. So there you go. There is a no-carb snack idea if Nabisco is listening. Char some Brussels sprouts, grab the outsides, put them in a, za- a bag, vac seal them. There you go. Keto diet friendly. Okay, that was strong. Hopefully we got you uh, thinking about some, some side dishes now for July 4th. But, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to have to probably make everything that we listed. Except for the coleslaw. I'm not, I'm not going not gonna to partake in that. You're a traitor. You're not even that's American. Just, that's me. You're not, it's just me. Is it a coincidence that I'm watching Canadian football right now? Because you should be, too. You're not American. Oh, I'm, I'm not. I watch baseball because it's America's pastime. It's July 4th. That's fine. I've got no retort for that, but fine. <laughs> Whatever. You're Canadian. All right, so let's jump into some football here. So we're going to talk about Pitt, University of Pitt. So um, first off, you know, one thing I want to mention about Pitt you know, their powder blue jerseys and yellow ha- ha- helmets, those are absolute fire. Can't get enough of them. And Pitt needs to make sure that they never wear anything but those ever again. I don't even know why they've got those just gold and blue Ugh. Notre Dame wannabe jerseys that crap. suck. They're crap. Give me the powder blue and the yellow ha- helmets. I'm telling you, you will see their recruiting probably jump at least 10 to 15 places just because of those uniforms yeah and that would take them up to 70th in the nation so that'd be great for them um yeah i just gotta say man uh i'm with you this i feel like this isn't a hot take here but pit no, no number one good. uniforms in the nation for me if they're gonna go with the royal blue and yellows i absolutely they're, love it i mean you, number two We're, well virginia that's tech's number obvious. one but we don't we don't yeah. even rank virginia tech because that's assumed okay yeah you're right we don't want to be biased on this podcast no absolutely not. so Head coach Pat Narduzzi, one of my favorite coaches in the ACC. Uh, he is a uh, comedian on the sidelines most of the time. Um, you know, I've got some other choice words, but I'll, I'll leave those at home for now. He did just sign a uh, seven-year contract after the 2017 season, so he is signed through 2024. Uh, his biggest win in the last couple of years, Tim, and you know, granted this is a team that was in the ACC championship last year, but didn't really have a great season to speak for because of it, uh, but they beat Clemson in 2016, and they beat second-ranked Miami in 2017. So they, they've had a couple of big wins, um, and this is a team that, you know, Narduzzi wants to be known for tough defense. Um, you know, it's a team that's been able to run the ball really well over the last few years. You know, they've been churning out running backs. They had Quadrioles and Darren Hall last year. Both of those guys are gone. But, uh, you know, before Narduzzi got to Pitt, you know, he had been a longtime defensive coordinator. So that's kind of why he was brought in, to kind of change the tide at Pitt. You know, he spent 2007 to 2014 as the D.C. at Michigan State and then joined Pitt in 2015, finished second in the Coastal. Their first two seasons, they had eight wins, and then they went 5-7 and seven in 2017 with that win against Miami, who was ranked second, and then 7-7 seven and seven in 2018. But like I mentioned, did end up winning the Coastal Division title. 28-24 and 24 in his time at Pitt so far, 20-12 and 12 in conference record, 0-3 in bowls, and most recently lost a very ugly Sun Bowl to Stanford 14-13 last year. So, you know, Pitt, Tim, it's, Pitt is such a uh, an outlier for me because it's, it's a place that is really a recruiting hotbed, you know, that West Pennsylvania region. Right. But the University of Pitt is just kind of, 
it's like a poor man's version of Georgia Tech because everybody that plays in West Pennsylvania or goes to high school in Pennsylvania, they want to play at Penn State. Pitt is an afterthought. Nobody wants to play at Pitt. Nobody goes to Pitt games. Nobody really cares about Pitt football. I mean, I'm not. I'm trying not to be harsh here, but that's just the way that I feel. Am I wrong? No, I mean, you're absolutely not wrong. It can look like the old Orange Bowl in there at times, uh, you know, during Miami games. With It's just so vacant, and there seems to be such a lack of energy surrounding that program. It's kind of sad. Um, you know, they're in a football-crazy town, but they're in a pro football town. Um, and regionally speaking, as you mentioned, it's it's a bastion of pit football there in Pittsburgh. And around there, it's 100% an Indy Lion. So it's it's an uphill battle, and I'm, I'm not even sure it's one that Pitt can necessarily win. So, you know, me dogging on their recruiting rankings was a little bit unfair because they are – they're dealt a, a tough hand, um, you know, and, and they've had some good teams in the past, some really good players uh, come through that program. So – uh, it's certainly doable. It's just unfortunate to see such a lack of energy in a place where, you know, you have all those people. Um, and regionally speaking, they're, you know, they, they don't really draw as much as their uh, big brothers in the same state. Yeah, it's just it's a program that you look at and it's just sitting right in the middle of a recruiting hotbed. And they just historically have not been able to capitalize on that. It's an NFL town. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's part of it. Um, you know, Penn State is off at State College in the middle of nowhere. I don't, I don't know if that helps them, but Pitt is always and always will be an NFL town. But, you know, is what it is. I think Narduzzi's done an okay job there. Um, I don't know if I would have given him a seven-year extension after, no. you know, going five and seven. Yeah, That's just not. me. No way. So their conference record was 6-2. and two. They ended up finishing the season 7-7. Seven and seven. So when they were playing outside of the conference, they were uh, struggling, struggling mightily. They ended up losing games to Georgia Tech, Miami, North Carolina. North Carolina was obviously terrible last year, uh, and they ended up losing that game by three. They took Syracuse to overtime and won, so that was a big game. They had a sneaky close game against Notre Dame uh, and lost by five and then got absolutely annihilated by Miami, but then beat Virginia Tech by 30 points, where oh. Quadriolis and Darren Hall, you know, every time they touched the ball, felt like they went 80 yards to the yeah. house. Yeah, took it for six every time. So just a really, uh, really interesting season for Pitt. Uh, they were absolutely destroyed by Clemson in the ACC Championship, but then they came back and trounced Temple in the Independence Bowl. So some of the themes kind of going into – into the spring, Tim, you know, they're without Quadri Olison. He was the only player drafted from the team, fifth round, 152nd overall to Atlanta. You know, Darren Hall did not end up getting drafted. In the transfer portal, they only had two players enter that. Uh, running back Jason Edwards, who has not found another team yet, and then tight end Tyler Seal ended up going to Temple. And then they brought in three different players, so a tight end, an offensive tackle, and an outside linebacker. But you know, Narduzzi's been a guy who is not, who's on record as not being a fan of the transfer portal. Yeah. So he was quoted uh, in, in the uh, in the spring as saying, "Let's put it this way: if a kid's name goes in the transfer portal, you can pretty much just kiss him goodbye because I'm not going to have a guy with one foot in, one foot out, and I'm sure there's a lot of coaches out there in the country like that. Oh yeah. So I wonder if his approach to the transfer portal 
kind of scares guys away from entering because we only saw two guys enter. Whereas, you know, some of the other higher profile teams in the ACC, you know, saw eight, nine, 10, 11 guys enter the portal. I wonder if his kind of like sledgehammer mentality, like if you leave, you're not coming back type of deal, has any kind of effect on, on these players. I mean, I think it probably would, if I'm thinking about it logically. I think it's actually a smart move uh, by Narduzzi. You kind of get those guys that are maybe eh, 60 40, 70 30 to wanting to stay at Pitt but kind of getting a wild hair and saying, you know, maybe I throw my name in there, completely gets them going, yeah, I'm not even going to risk it because this is an outside observation, but Pat looks like he can be a real dick. So I would hate (laughs) to get on the bad side of Pat Narduzzi. So, you know, for the other, you know, other guys throwing their names in the hat, they're probably (laughs) completely done with the pit football program. So at least you get rid of that uh, kind of, I'm going to use this as a free agency thing and test the waters. And if I don't get what I want, I'll come right back, which we saw a couple times with Virginia Tech. So um, maybe not the worst strategy by Pat. So one of the big things they needed to address this year, Tim, is the offense. So one of the ways that they did that in the offseason was bringing in uh, University of Massachusetts head coach Mark Whipple, who went 14-18 and in his time there in Amherst. You know, the Panthers, they ended up losing their final three games of the 2018 season uh, by scoring only a combined 26 points. They finished 94th in the FBS at 25.6 points per game. You know, Whipple's a guy who's been in the NFL. You know, he was the quarterback coach for the Steelers with Roethlisberger, OC at Miami, you know, QB coach for the Browns. So he's got a pretty decent resume. And the guy that he's really coming in to help develop is quarterback Kenny Pickett's. So Pickett's is a guy, Tim, who... You know, he was basically their biggest liability on offense last year. Oh, yeah. You know, he completed under 60% of his passes. You know, 60% is really the threshold in college football that you want to get into. His touchdown to interception ratio was okay, 2-1, to 12 touchdowns, 6 picks. But now he's leading an offense without two stud running backs, and everything is going to really fall onto him. So Whipple has a big job ahead of him trying to develop pickets to get him into that leadership role that they they need to – to compete this year yeah no question and I was looking at some quotes looking through some press clippings and stuff looking at recaps of Pitt Spring and uh, from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette one of their you know articles like five things we learned about Pitt football in the spring practice uh, number one was and I quote the gap between Kenny Pickett and his quarterback competition is still sizable for better or worse yeah in, I would say that's for quote. worse <laughs> in what universe could that be better? <laughs> if Kenny Pickett is that far ahead of that quarterback competition, I have some real worries about the pit offense going into next year. Yeah, well, you never know, right? Because like, I, I like to think back to when I was on the high school golf team. You know, There was <laughs> of a couple of guys in there who were absolutely terrible one year. They came back and they were you know, almost scratch golfers the next year. So you sure. never know what's going to happen. But what we did see out of the spring game, Tim, was a lot of passing. Yep. And that is really just an indication of Whipple's system. So all the QBs combined to throw 58 times, which that just spells disaster all sure over does. the place for me with this with this pit offense. And sure you know, does. Pickett was a little bit more accurate. You know, I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of short throws. I'm not sure how much we're going to see him kind of stretch the field and and go deep. But you know, as a whole. 
Both sides combined to complete 36 of those 58 passes, 425 and three touchdowns. Um, On the rushing side, Tim, and this is why the pressure is really going to be on Pickett, Pitt had 11 yards rushing in the spring game. Now, Mm. I'm on record. I've said this many times throughout the spring on this podcast. I don't care about spring football stats. Nope. But when I see a team that has been so reliant over the years rushing the football and the fact that if you include the sacks, they totaled negative 32 yards rushing, eh, maybe I'm going to throw up the red flag there. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I have major concerns about this pit offense. One, because I just don't think Kenny Pickett is that good. And two, I just don't know who who's going to be able to to carry the load uh, in the backfield to to kind of like set the tone for this offense. Yeah, and it's one of those things too, where if you consider, at least from the spring game, it looks like Whipple is going to be uh, wanting his offense to throw the ball a lot more. It's hard to imagine a universe in which that offense that we saw last year losing some key pieces, uh, just coming back and decided and deciding, hey, we're going to be super effective at throwing the ball a lot. I don't see it. And that's not to say long-term he won't be successful, but like you, I'm just, I have my doubts heading into the regular season for Pitt's offense. And, uh, you know, maybe we're going to be wrong. It seems like uh, Pitt's wide receivers have a lot of confidence in Pickett. Um, and, and maybe he's turned a corner. You know, that does happen in college athletics. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. But as long as they wear those royal blue and yellow uniforms, they'll look good whether they're winning or losing. And that, in the end, that's what really matters. Yeah, just as long as those uniforms aren't green or brown by the end of the game, then... Yeah, absolutely. But even on the defensive side of the ball, Tim, they've got to replace three out of their four linebackers. Um, So, you know, defense is is something that Narduzzi has really prided himself on. Um, They've got Cam Bright, Phil Campbell, Elias Reynolds trying to come in and and start. Those seem like they're going to be the guys heading into the summer that are going to be... um, in those starting slots, but you know, we'll see what happens. You know, the three guys that they're replacing, they were all from the Paul Christ era. So they weren't even our doozy guys. And then, um, you know, I guess their strongest suit on defense this year is going to have to be their secondary. You know, they've got the all ACC honorable mention in DeMar Hamlin yep. and then cornerback Dane Jackson, um, who's leading that unit. So both were all ACC honorable mentions last year. Um, so hopefully that secondary can hold up for them, but you know, if they've got problems over the middle, unable to get to the quarterback, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of pressure on that on that defensive secondary to to make stops and try to keep these games close. Especially when I'm not sure how many points this offense is going to be putting up week in and week out. Yeah, and I'm especially interested in seeing what Demar Hamlin and Paris Ford are going to be able to do um, at safety. I think they do have some playmakers in the secondary, which is always super important. Um, but, you know, ha- having the uh, lack of experience and the lack of playmakers at linebacker right now is going to be something they're going to need to figure out. And, uh, yeah, it- it's one of those things where you have a defense that may be relied on a little more heavily than they usually would given the uh, change in offensive system there. So they're really going to need some good play from that defense. Uh, so, all eyes will be on them, and, and there's certainly some potential there in that linebacking room, but it's going to be one of those things where we're going to have to see how fall practice plays out and get a feel for that as the games get a little closer. So we're going to talk about this later in the summer, Tim, and you know, hopefully we'll have somebody on from Pitt 
um, that follows the team a little bit more closely than us that can talk to this and maybe convince us otherwise. But, you know, what would be your expectation of where they finish in the Coastal? Because to me, I'm thinking they're last or second to last at this point. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. They're either last or second to last. Um, And and honestly, I may be leaning more towards last in that scenario um, than I would be second to last. But certainly those are the the two spots I see them landing in as far as the ACC goes. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting – it's going to be a really, really fascinating Coastal Division this year because, you know, one of the teams we're about to talk about um, with Miami and Virginia Tech in the mix, it's just going to be top-heavy. It's going to be those three teams you would have to expect. And then you've got Georgia Tech, uh, North Carolina, and Pitt um, all competing for that four through six spot. So – yeah, we'll see how it sh- we'll see how it shapes out. But you know, next let's talk about let's talk about UVA, Tim. So the University of Virginia, sure. You know, um, the guys that call their campus the grounds, and you know their freshman first years, and so on. Head coach Bronco Mendenhall, he signed a two year extension through twenty twenty four in May. Uh, he did come into a complete rebuild, so he's done a nice job so far. Two and ten uh, with a one and seven record in twenty sixteen. 2017 he goes six and seven with a three and five conference record and last year he goes eight and five four and four in conference with a bowl win they destroyed south carolina 28 to nothing so steady improvement in his three years 16 and 22 overall eight and 16 conference record and again you know i can't hold that against him he came into an absolute disaster in 2016 so i think where he's got the program now kind of speaks for itself but He's a guy where before uh, UVA, he spent 11 years at BYU, won 99 games there, 43 losses, went 6-5 and five in bowls, never had a losing season. And from 06 to 2011, he won at least 10 games in five out of those six seasons. So he's a guy who really can field some consistent uh, football teams. And this year he brought in the 34th ranked recruiting class. You know, it was seventh best in the ACC, but the ACC gets really thick in that 35 to Mm -hmm. 20 range. They do. Uh, So he's kind of like, you know, hitting par for the course as far as the ACC is concerned. Exactly what he needs to do in order to be consistent and, you know, at this point competing for a Coastal Division title. Uh, But what do you you think about Broncos so far on the job that he's done? I mean, I think he's done really well considering where the program was under London um, to see where Bronco has them now, I think you can only really say good things about him. And especially when you look at the talent that was on that roster when he got there, um, it's pretty amazing to me the turnaround that they've had. A lot of that, sure, has to do with the fact that the Coastal's been really down the past couple of years. Um, but really surprising for me, given the fact that where Mendenhall started, where he is now, the fact that he's approaching a 500 record and should be able to get one this year uh, at the end, I think you can only say good things about the job he's done. And coming in, we all kind of knew that this was a good hire for Virginia. Um, what I'm interested to see is how much of this is Bronco and how much of it is the dynamo that they have at quarterback. Um, you know, I think Perkins made that team look a lot better uh, than maybe they would have otherwise looked without him last year. Um, he really picked up the slack for them in a big way. And, and we're going to see if, if Bronco can keep this momentum going and, 
and keep the team going and, and keep that up, upward trajectory that they've had last year uh, and keep it going into 2019, then sure, I'm going to say that he was a knockout hire. But we're close. Um, and like I said, we knew he was a solid coach, so none of this is really surprising. You know, I agree, and I'm going to talk about Bryce Perkins here in a little bit. Um, Bryce Perkins, probably, you know, one of the best athletes in the ACC, you know. Absolutely, down. yeah. Um, but if you look at UVA's schedule last year, or their record, I should say, you know, they had five wins, four wins in the regular season that came against Richmond, Ohio, Louisville, North Carolina. And yeah. you can throw in a fit there with Liberty. Ooh. So their two best wins came against Miami, which was a good win at the time. That's a good win, yeah. And and Duke on the road won by two touchdowns. Right. Otherwise, they lost by 10 to Pitt. They lost in back-to-back weeks at the end of the season in overtime, both games on the road, to Georgia Tech and Virginia Tech. And early in the season, they lost to Indiana and then got beat by two touchdowns against NC State on the road. So when I look at that and I see wins against Ohio, Louisville, North Carolina, and Liberty, and Richmond, there was a lot of fluff in that schedule last year. No question. And granted, they performed well in their bowl game, but the Virginia athletic program right now is riding a wave. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got the national championship in basketball. Ugh, don't say that. They've got the lacrosse national championship. Oh, they can have that. So now people, this momentum is is pushing over to the football program, and they're starting to get these expectations. Sure. I purposefully did not reach out to a UVA writer <laughs> for this show. Right. Because everything I've seen has just been so just outlandishly just one-sided as far as like expectations for how UVA is going to do this year. Right. I just, I don't see it. I just don't see it after diving deep into this team. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, they're a team who, you know, Juan Thornhill, one of their best defensive backs last year went second round. Okay. Tim Harris, one of their other top defensive backs goes six round the San Francisco. Then they had Bryce Hall come back. Mm-hmm. So they got a, big. they got a big get back in that defensive secondary, but they did lose two very key components. Uh, they had two wide receivers move on from the program. They had an outside linebacker leave a uh, couple of other players, but really the key themes for this team in the spring, Tim has been depth. So both yeah. sides of the ball, specifically linebackers, secondary and receivers. And so before we talk about the quarterback position, you know, the the defense is something that, you know, it looked pretty good in the spring game. You know, they did this little kind of weird game where they used this uh, intersecting scoring system is what they like to call it. So the offense scored points for touchdowns, field goals, for first downs, and something that they call efficient plays. So I'm not right. really sure how they define that, but they got points for it from the coaching staff. And then the defense would score points based off of, Turnover, sacks, third or fourth down stops, and then tackles for a loss. So the defense beat the offense 78-69. to 69. What does that really mean? I don't know. It means the defense <laughs> had better plays than the offense, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, if we, if we look at the wide receiver core first, 
you know, this is a team that lost their best wide receiver last year in, in Zacchaeus. He's gone. So we've got Terrell Jana, who played pretty well in the, in the spring game. And then Mendenhall mentions that he's been a leader. Then we've got Deboy and Joe Reed, and they should figure to be part of the receiving court. After that, okay, we've got a Tavares Kelly in the slot, maybe. Like, there's a lot of questions for UVA at the wide receiver position. And then if we look at the running back position, they've got a sophomore, Wayne Tawalapapa. Go ahead and nominate him for the all <laughs> ACC names team. He's yeah. on the list. He's so, there. Sophomore from Honolulu, Hawaii. He played pretty well in the spring game, two touchdowns. He's replacing Jordan Ellis. So that's a huge loss on this offense that I just feel like nobody's talking about the attrition that this team has had on both sides of the ball, specifically the offensive side, where Bryce Perkins' job has gotten even more difficult this year. I mean, last year UVA was a one-trick pony, and that Mm -hmm. one trick was Bryce Perkins. So somehow that's going to have to redefine itself this year when they have another target on their back. You know, teams are not going to be caught off guard by Virginia this year. I think Virginia is going to, quote-unquote, disappoint based off the expectations that I'm seeing for this program for 2019. Yeah, and I think you're right, especially when you frame it in the uh, the eyes of seeing it through the expectations that a lot of people are lobbing on them after their strong season last year. If you dig into those numbers, um, you mentioned the schedule was atrocious. Um, and when you look at the offensive numbers, um, against that atrocious schedule, they were only 62nd in offensive S and P plus rankings, 62nd. So they were as average as you could possibly be. Now, the issue that they had last year on offense was, as you mentioned, um, partly mentioned the wide receivers core. More importantly, it was the fact that the team literally was one of the least explosive offensive teams in the nation. If they weren't hitting easy scores, they were putting together long drives um, aided by Bryce Perkins' feet and his scrambling ability, and they did that very well. The problem with that is a stronger schedule exposes you if you can't get easy scores. The most successful teams are going to be your explosive teams, um, teams that can grind it out but also get one or two explosive plays that lead to touchdowns, at least if not three or four or five, six, seven or eight, uh, depending on what scheme you run. So, as you mentioned, I see this season as being a regression toward the mean. Um, I don't think they're going to explode with Bryce Perkins like a lot of people seem to think they are. And I think Bryce is an incredible quarterback. The issue surrounding Bryce is the fact that he's got no offensive playmakers to match his dynamism back there. Um, And until they figure out how to get there, I don't think Virginia is going to be, you know, a nine-win football team, which I think I'm seeing floating around. Well, I see them more as a 6-6 six and six football team. Perkins is going to be a guy who wins them games. No doubt. No you doubt. Know, he threw for 2,600 yards last year. He had over 1,100 yards rushing. But that was with a playmaker running back and a go-to wide receiver. Yeah. Whereas this year there's just more questions around those two positions. You've got an offensive line who's returning two starters and a guy who played a little bit. You've got a Penn State transfer coming in and and uh, Alex Gellerstedt and then only three other juniors in the mix for potential playing time. So, you know, there's just questions everywhere you look. Teams are going to figure out how to contain Perkins. 
they might not stop him. But if they contain him, they're going to have a pretty good shot to win. And if, if you look at the, the way that Virginia starts the season, okay, they're on the road to Pitt. You know, I expect them to win that one. Yeah, that's a They w. got William and Mary, so a nice little 2-0 start. Then they get Florida State at home, Old Dominion, on the road at North Notre Dame, on the road at Miami. So there's a chance that they're 3-3 three and three in mid-October. Right. Pretty good chance. And then they get Duke at Louisville at North Carolina, Georgia Tech, Liberty, Virginia Tech. So, again, their schedule is not super difficult this year. But no. North Carolina should be improved. Georgia Tech don't really know what to expect yet. Yeah, it's a wild card. You know, Liberty and Old Dominion, they're not pushovers. Yeah, don't sleep on ODU coming from I mean, a, a yeah, tech alum. Don't sleep from ODU. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not like those are FCS schools, right? Right. But 90% chance to beat them. Yeah, they, I mean, they the Monarchs are going to come out fired up to play Virginia, just like they came out fired up to play Tech. And, you know, that's not one you can sleep on when you lost Juan Thornhill. And uh, don't forget Chris Peace, too, who was awesome. Great linebacker. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some pieces missing, and uh, yeah, don't sleep on those games. I actually think the way this schedule sets up is much more difficult in a rhythm way than last year's schedule was. Last year's schedule was you didn't really have a tough game back-to-back um, when right. you had a – and you didn't really have a tough game. Uh, but yeah. when you did have a slightly more difficult game, you had an easier game the next week. Uh, there's a stretch there where I could see them losing three straight games. Um, and how does a team like UVA handle that? And that's where we're going to find out what kind of coach Bronco Mendenhall is. Yeah, we are. And I, I think, I think if Perkins misses time, this oh, team has a chance to lose whatever game he misses. Absolutely. I don't care who they're playing. Doesn't matter the opponent. So that being said, defense returns eight starters. You know, they were ranked in the top 25 last year from a defensive standpoint. Yep. They look strong in the spring. You know, they did lose the three pieces that we talked about, or the two pieces in the secondary. And then they also lost Chris Peace, who was third team all ACC, had mm-hmm. seven and a half sacks. But with his absence, there was no other defensive player on last year's team and or returning this year that had two and a half sacks or more. So yeah. that's a big question mark. How are they going to get to the quarterback? And then we've got the all-ACC first-team corner in Bryce Hall, who led the nation with 24 passes defended last year. You know, he's going to be the anchor of that secondary. You know, they've got the safety Joey Blunt returning. He was second-team all-ACC. So they've still got Mm -hmm. some playmakers in that secondary. But they've still got a couple of holes to fill. They've still got to figure out how to get to the quarterback. I think defensively this team will be okay. It'll keep them in games. No question. Um, But No question. Again, depending on what teams can figure out with Bryce Perkins because now they've had a year to look at game tape, a year to figure him out. You know, he's not going to catch people off guard this year. So that is going to be my biggest kind of thing to watch for UVA. One, how far can Bryce Perkins take this team because it's on his back. And two, how are teams going to be able to adapt and slow this guy down better than they did last year? So, you know, like I mentioned before, UVA is really riding this uh, this wave of athletic department success here. It's spilled over into their fans, but, <laughs> you know, 
I don't know. But that kind of that kind of leads me to, to something I wanted to talk about, Tim, before we jump into uh, the Virginia Tech-UVA rivalry. Top items you're most likely to see at a UVA tailgate. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Here we go. So I'm just going to ring off my list. Okay. And you can go ahead and agree or disagree. So these are just off the top of my head. First off is Zima, obviously. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's the long running or joke. Or some kind of wine cooler of sorts, you know, something that might be refreshing, you know, for uh, for a warm summer day and in the uh, in the confines of your of your estate. But uh, <laughs> at a football tailgate, I I don't know. It's just not not for me. Uh, I, I will board. say though, side note before we move on, they re-released Zima about three years ago, four years ago now. I had never had it. I tried it, and on a on a ninety degree day in September, man, my palm might be itching to reach into that cooler and pull out a Zima. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So uh, Smirnoff Ice in there, maybe a Red's Apple Ale. <laughs> there you go. Hey, don't hate on Red's. Okay, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> hating. To, I'm just pointing something out. Okay. Okay. Most likely to be seen together. Sure. Okay. Sure. It's in my cart and Amazon. Red's Apple Ale's popping. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, you're going to see your cheese boards. You know, your, Absolutely. Uh, your wine. Your wine. Um, instead of like a liquor bar, you're probably going to see some kind of like wine cooler. Um, let's and see. That's, bow ties. that's where I draw a hard line. Draw a hard line at wine at a tailgate. I've seen it <laughs> at many ACC schools from very few people. But... Every time I see it, it triggers me. Uh, bow ties, absolutely. Uh, khakis, which is a you know that's that's not just a UVA thing. It just no. it infuriates me when I see people wearing khakis at a football game. Yeah, the bow ties drive me nuts though. As oh. hot as it is, and you're gonna have a bow tie on. Hey, you're just you know what it is. It's the try too hard aspect of how yeah. that looks. Yeah, that that's what pisses me off about it really. I'm just like, who decides to wake up in the morning of your school's home football game mm-hmm. and throw on a bow tie? Like, I can honestly say that has never run through my mind. Nope. And nor ever will. Um, let's see, Tim. Let's go ahead and cap this off. I would say tissues to wipe away the tears would definitely be at the tailgate. And then probably one. probably other teams' fans. What Ooh. did I miss? Ah, man, that last one you got in there is very accurate. That reminds me when I was in high school 2000 in, I want to say, five football season. I was there for Florida State coming to town, sat in the Seminole section. It was kind of awesome. Um, a lot of Seminole fans of that game is where I was going. Scott Stadium, though, uh, I will say it is very nicely kept up. Yo, it's not a, it's not a bad place. I used not to live a like place. a mile from there. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a really, really, it is a very scenic football stadium. Um, one of my favorite stadiums in the ACC, uh, usually because I have such positive feelings associated with my teams playing there. Um, but really and truly, it's a great place to watch a game. So anything you wanted to add to that list? You know, I did. I think you missed out. I, I feel like there would be an abundance of sparkling waters in the cooler. 
So uh, your LaCroix, uh, your flavored uh, beverages, your Perrier's, uh, you know, I, I feel like you, you, you didn't mention that. I feel like that would show up. Um, and I just wanted to emphasize the wine because when I went to the, especially the Florida State game, this was my first Scott Stadium experience, which is why I bring it up. I was blown away by the amount of wine on the tables at tailgates. It, I, I was not used to it. Growing up as an NC State fan, you do not see wine at the football games. Very rarely is that a thing. Um, but yeah, it's just UVA, an odd choice for a tailgate. It is an odd choice. It is. I just don't. I just don't get it. Like what? A, what about an eighty-degree Pinot Noir says football to you? <laughs> what about well, it? Well, what about anything says football to UVA? Uh, well, to me, a thirty-three-degree Natty Ice sure says football. Not to UVA. So, no. <laughs> not do, to do UVA. They sell no. Natty products. In no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure not. Na- I think I think Bush it's all Star Hill and craft breweries. Yeah. Uh, IPAs. Well, Star IPAs. Hill. That's what you're going to find don't, in the coolers. Don't, IPAs. don't bash Star Hill. Star Hill makes great beer. Great, great, great little microbrewery down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the VT-UVA rivalry, Tim. We'd be, uh, we'd be remiss not to, but just to, just to recap the, uh, the rivalry a bit, the two schools first met in 1895. They've played annually mm. since 1970. Virginia Tech leads the all-time series 58-37-5, to and Virginia Tech is obviously riding a 15-game winning streak. 19 out of the last 20 games Virginia Tech has won. That dates back to 1999. So a little bit of trivia about the Commonwealth Cup, and, you know, I wikipedia this. I, I didn't go too far in my research, so, <laughs> you know, I'm going to assume it's correct. Right. The trophy was created in 1996. So became known as the the rivalry became known as the Commonwealth Cup. It is actually constructed, Tim, of marble and cherry wood. Oh, and it's four feet high. There you go. So that is a little bit larger than I would have guessed. Yeah, me too. Um, and it contains the score of all the games in the series. And uh, Virginia Tech, as of Monday, today. Hopefully you're listening to this, and if it's not Monday and it's Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, you can add the correct amount of days. They have held the trophy for 5,329 days. Beautiful. So, Tim, that brings me to the definition of a rivalry, and you can answer if if you feel it is one. A rivalry is defined as a state or situation in which people or groups are competing with each other. That, to me, defines every game. Sure between any school in a state. But there's been a lot of games over the course of uh, of Virginia Tech's win streak where it hasn't really been much of a competition. Now, recently, the games have been quite interesting, specifically last year's. But that leads me to some of the most memorable games in this series history, and I'd, uh, I'd be silly not to start with a big one, Tim. 1990, Frank Beamer's first win over the... Virginia Cavaliers. UVA was actually ranked number one at one point during that season, but the reason this one is so big, Beamer arrived onto the scene in 87. He had gone 11-23-1 up until that point, and beating UVA for the first time was definitely his largest career win up until that point as head coach of Virginia Tech. And this ended up being his only win against UVA in his first six tries, if you can believe that. 
Yeah. So that's crazy. Went 19 and four against UVA from 93 to 2015, including 12 straight wins from 04 to 2016, which has now been extended by Justin Fuente and his coaching staff. So just wanted to kind of throw that in there. I thought that was a nice little way to kick it off. Any, uh, yeah. any, any games stand out to you? Um, you know, a, a ton of them do. I think last year really sticks out to me because of how behind the eight ball that seemed. Um, and mentally I had all but given up on the fact that this rivalry streak was going to extend because of where we were in that game and what we had to overcome in the sheer freakish nature of the way that we ended up walking away with the game. Um, so for me, I think the in its recency bias, partly, but last year was just such a roller coaster of emotion from, oh my gosh, the deeps in the deep, deep, deep in the pit of my soul, I felt that loss and I had already started to go through the steps of the grieving process to end up on the high of, holy crap, we're going to continue this streak was something else. And I'm not so sure I've experienced that in a football game, at least in the past two to three years. So last year gets a nod for me. I just want to give that a shout out. I got to tell you, Tim, like we were like the Hokies were four and six going into that game. Yep. And I had just kind of accepted the fact that, you know what? It was a good run. Sure. (laughs) Like this is, uh, this is probably coming to an end today. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, the 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 way that the ball started bouncing towards the end of that game was was something to behold but mm-hmm. uh, I'll take it I'll take it and I think the Hokies are going to be much better this year that was that was Virginia's prime chance to to get one in the old win column and um you know we'll see we'll see if they can uh, take advantage over the next couple of years with uh, Bronco leading the way but you know that leads me to my next one Tim you know the loss in 2003 was definitely one of the most memorable moments for me because that fake field goal executed by Matt Schaub to Heath Miller mm-hmm. was one of the best executed fake field goals I've ever seen. No and doubt. Heath Miller could have just walked into the end zone, and I still see it in, in my dreams occasionally. And uh, that pretty much put the nail in the coffin in the Hokies in that game. 35-21 uh, was the loss, but you know it's a season where the Hokies had started 7-1, and one. You know, they had beaten number two Miami that year, snapping their NCAA record regular season win streak that we talked about with Cam a couple of weeks ago. But they had lost four of their last five after or going into that game. So everything was just unraveling for Virginia Tech. 2003 was such a weird season for that team yeah. uh, because it was a team where, you know, for a second you thought, you know what, this team's got a shot to if they're not in the national championship or, you know, competing for one, they're going to be in a, a BCS bowl. Um, and then it just kind of fell off the wagon. And, and that loss really kind of uh, just drove it home as to what a uh, disappointing finish to the season that the Hokies had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was tough. Uh, that's a tough one. And um, interesting to talk about. It's crazy. It seems so long ago. And you think about it and the fact that UVA hasn't been able to at least sneak one in between now and then is honestly mind-blowing and as you said for for those Virginia fans it's got to feel like some kind of curse after last year Um, you know all the stars lined up and even during the game the stars were lining up um, up until the last few minutes of that football game 
And it's it's crazy to think that we're sitting here talking about the streak still being intact. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, one other game that really sticks out to me that I wanted to bring up, and I'm sure you recall this, uh, it was our junior year, 2008. Mm-hmm. UVA brings out Vic Hall to run the Wildcat. Oh, I remember. And boy, did he run the Wildcat. <laughs> and... You know, Hall was a little guy, five foot nine, but he was one of the state's most productive high school quarterbacks ever. I think he still owns like a bunch of records in the state of Virginia. Um, and he had a lot of success on the ground, 109 yards. He had touchdowns of 40 and 16 yards. And, you know, for as great of a coordinator as Bud Foster has been over the years, his one Achilles heel is a quarterback that can move out of the pocket. Oh, and yeah. And UVA knew that. They put Big Hall back there. I remember watching the game. I was like, hold on. Cause I was in the north the north end zone. I was like, is that Vic Hall? And <laughs> it took me a couple of plays to to confirm because you're you know, you're sitting there watching the game. Um but yeah, it was uh that was a close one, but Tyrod Taylor ended up outrushing Vic Hall in that game. Uh, on the same number of carries. Hokies went on to win that one 17 to 14, so that was one of the close ones in the series and then ended up beating Boston College to avenge the loss earlier in that season um in the ACC Championship and then went on to win the Orange Bowl against Cincinnati. So yeah. That would have that would have been a big loss it. for the Hokies had they lost that one. Yeah, that would have been a huge loss and uh yeah, that was that was a tight game. Uh, 17 to 14, it's close as it's going to get. And mobile quarterbacks and Bud Foster, uh, you know, name a more iconic duo than those two. So, you know, I remember sweating that game. That was a tough one, but it led to some beautiful things in an ACC championship game. So in the end, it ended well. I remember that was in the, uh, the tail end of the Hokies rotating Sean Glennon in, uh, with Tyrod Taylor and, uh, I'm just glad that that ended. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the whole rotation thing. So, yeah, I mean, that was one of those iconic games, and I'm glad you brought up Vic Hall because I have not thought about that guy in years. Yeah, he was a monster. He was any, a beast. Uh, any other games stick out to you? Um, Yeah, so 2011, I think that was when we shut them out. And, yep, you know, anytime you can nothing. get a shutout over a rival is huge. Uh, David Wilson, I remember just absolutely spazzing out in the second half of that game. But, uh, yeah, that, that's a big one. Anytime you can shut out a rival, granted it was with Mike Rocco, a quarterback for them. Um, so looking back on it, I'm not sure how much of an achievement it really was. But, boy, it feels good to get 30-plus points to their nothing. Um, that's, that's always my high point. The, the bigger the defeats in a rivalry, the better. Yeah, so, you know, it's been a uh, – even for the, the streak, it's still been a, a series that has been competitive – um, on and off, you know, obviously mm-hmm. there's been some years where there's been some dominant wins. 2016, Virginia Tech beat UVA 52 to 10, 52 to 10, you know, last year was an overtime win. Um, you know, that Hokies probably should have lost. Uh, but no doubt, you know, one thing being said is, you know, I'm kind of glad to have UVA back as yes. a threat. Uh, Because it just makes things a little bit more interesting, right? So, um, you know, you you don't ever want to lose to your rival. But at the same time, it's like it it always makes it a little bit more fun when they're good and you're beating them. Right. Yeah, anytime there could be a little bit more running on those games, the better. 
Um, you know, hopefully it gets to a point where there's actual title implications on the line for that game. That would be cool. And I mean ACC title implications. I don't ever expect there to be national championship uh, implications on that game. Uh, but you never know, and it would be good to get back there at some point. And, uh, you know, UVA on the right track. They're certainly looking a lot better. And if, if last year is any indication, uh, these two programs may not be as far off um, as it would have seemed a couple years ago. So. So those are our spring recaps for UVA and Pitt. Uh, we will see if we can get some uh, some guys on the show to kind of talk about uh, some of our upcoming games throughout the season, maybe do a little bit of a preview. And that kind of leads me into my next topic of conversation. You know, this will be uh, one of the last times you hear just Tim and I for the foreseeable future. It's uh, We've got quite a few, few interviews lined up with some blogs around the ACC, a couple of reporters. Uh, so uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, we'll be hitting on um, all of the schools throughout the ACC, kind of leading into the start of uh, summer. Um, so you know, spread the word. If you're a Virginia Tech fan, if you're a NC State fan, if you're North Carolina, you know, whatever. We're going to be talking about everybody. Um, but uh, you know, we are going to bring it back to to Virginia Tech here at times because we are uh, two Virginia Tech grads and love talking Hokies football. So. Um, at the same time, we want it to be ACC and Hokies, and uh, you know we think kind of jumping around and talking to some other schools will will make it interesting for for everybody, not just Virginia Tech fans. So, Tim, what's uh, what are you looking forward to about that? Everything. I mean, it's hard to pick out just one thing. It's so cool. Some of these names that we have lined up are people that I have been following for a long time, and to get to interview them on a podcast that is uh, that is my own. Um, is pretty cool, and I know you feel the same way. Uh, so that's exciting. We're going to get some insight that you really aren't going to be able to get just by browsing the web, which is really cool. Um, not that we're some kind of insider podcast, but I, I will say it's cool to see it coming together. We're, we're giving our nod to Virginia Tech, but I want to make it very clear that this is an ACC-focused podcast as well, um, because to me there's nothing better than watching ACC football, and I truly mean that. Um, you know, watching Duke and Wake Forest play football or, uh, you know, Pitt and NC State, anybody. I love it. I know you love it. Um, and I know there are people out there that love it. So I'm just glad that we can, you know, bring these types of interviews and this types of content to, to folks like me and you. That's what I love about it the most. Yeah. So like we said, spread the word, uh, you know, subscribe, leave us a review, let us know how we're doing. Um, and, uh, you know, grow from there. We wanna we wanna keep getting bigger, getting guests. If you got any mailbag questions, go on our website, chowderandgrits.com, fill it out. Before we end this, Tim, I wanted to to bring this up because I knew it would make you really happy. <laughs> What's that? There is a Taco Bell themed hotel. Oh my word. What? That's going to be open for four days. It's a pop up hotel in Palm Springs, California. The rooms are going to be Taco Bell themed. There's going to be tacos and sauce pictures and <laughs> just sauce packets strung taco about. Taco furniture and all kinds <laughs> of, of things. Of course. You know, there's a pool with some like sauce packet floats. Yeah. The hotel Would you sold like your out bed in two soft minutes. or crunchy. Oh my gosh! Two minutes. Two minutes. Wow. But that's you know, a just, shame. Just wanted to bring that up. Like the the photo that I see here is just unbelievable. There's like 
you know, a couple of normal pillows, and then there's a fire hot throw pillow. Hell yeah. There's a bunch of sauce packets in the background. It's very Palm Springies. There's a frame picture right. of sauce. I don't if see any you, tacos, though, in this if one. If you flip that tap and neon blue Baja Blast Mountain Dew does not come out, I would demand a refund immediately. <laughs> yeah. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And you know what? I mean, honestly, I love that's it. where I, love I found idea. my love for Mountain Dew was at a Taco Bell. I was like, wow, this diet Mountain Dew <laughs> just changed just changed the game. It's so good. It's And, and it you really know, is. I don't know if you know this or not. I posted about it on Facebook a few weeks ago. This blew my mind. They now have diet Baja Blast Mountain Dew and Taco Bell. Wow. Which is a, a complete game changer. You know what, you know what uh, Mountain Dew that I loved? And I don't think they have it anymore. Code Red. Oh, man. Code Red, dude. Yeah. They yeah. still have it at some Taco Bell locations. Okay. Well, yeah, I just I had to bring it up. I saw it right before this podcast. And, uh, yeah, I thought it was a must bring. So that is our show for today. We are Chowder and Grits. You can find us on really anywhere you're listening to podcasts you know we prefer apple Podcasts, but we're on google play store spotify TuneIn radio and stitcher then you can also head over to childrengrits.com check us out there we've got an embedded player on the website um tim why don't you tell these fine people what they can do for us leave us reviews tell your friends share our content on social media it goes a long way into helping us and we can see that it is working um, so we do look at the numbers and we can tell that you guys are listening and growing numbers and we really appreciate it. So especially if you're new, uh, you like what we do, go ahead and share, leave a review. We appreciate all the help that you guys give us uh, and we can't thank you guys enough. That's it for us tonight, but we want to go ahead and say thanks for listening and go ACC.